How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Stretch the kindness, brush with madness. Is it sadness or just a show? Then go, 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 go. Then go, 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 go. Then go, 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 go. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Nice. We got a little bit extra of the song, too. I don't think people have ever heard that part. Mark, you sounded great, as always, as always. How's the week been? It's been great. How's your week going, Dr. Joe? Uh, it's it's really been fascinating. I got uh, appointed through uh, ABH, the Association of Behavioral Health here in Massachusetts, to a commission uh, looking at medical necessity criteria. So it sounds you know, like maybe it's not the most fun thing, but actually it's really important about how do we assess medical criteria and necessity for mental health in the state of Massachusetts. So this is a mandated thing by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I am truly honored, uh, truly honored to be on this commission so we can help a lot of people streamline the process to get mental health. That's great. How did they find you? Uh, I, I'm already on the ABH uh, as the CMO of Riverside. We have a, a whole committee, and uh, and they reached out and asked Riverside if they could take some of my time. So it's pretty cool. I love it. Well, good for really you. Good. Well, good for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for acknowledging and recognizing you. Kind of cool, you know. It's um, you know, we all want to feel valuable, and that That's sure right. did boost my oxytocin level. So I'm feeling pretty good. Tom, could you introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we have the author of The Child Code, Dr. Danielle Dick. Danielle spent the past 20 years studying the surprising ways that our genes and environments shape our lives, from child behavior to addiction, mental health, and so much more. Throughout her career, she's written more than 400 peer-reviewed publications and secured over $55 million in grant funding. But she cares about more than just generating research. She wants to bring the science to you in ways that are engaging and empowering. Because she's not just a scientist, she's a mom, a wife, a neighbor, a friend, and she wants to help you see how understanding your unique genetic wiring can help you in your parenting, your marriage, your friendships, your job. She believes knowledge creates a foundation for real change. And the more we know, the better we can do. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks so well, much for having me. Welcome, Dr. Dick. This is like a mind-blowing experience for us because I have been interested in genetics and research and sociobiology for a long, long time. So how did you, how did you become interested in this field? So I was actually pre-med as an undergrad studying to become a doctor and I took a psychology class and I became fascinated by the brain as the last frontier of medicine, how we know so much less about psychiatric and substance use outcomes and what causes them and how to treat them as compared to other areas of medicine. And at the same time, I happened to be taking a genetics class and I became really interested in how 
we are all born with these different genetic codes and they influence so many things. Obviously, lots of things we can see on the outside, differences between us and eye color and hair color and body shapes and sizes, but so much on the inside that influences you know, um, both our susceptibility to diseases, but also just the ways our brains are wired, which has far reaching effects. And so ended up shifting gears, going on to do a PhD and uh, study genetics and psychology and have been doing research ever since. It's a very impressive story. Um, I, I also was very interested as an undergraduate in sociobiology and studying it at the same time as Zen Buddhism. So that has absolutely influenced me. Um, for over 400 publications, this is mind-blowingly impressive. Well, thank you. I love to write. And, you know, when I talk to undergraduates or others about why I went into research, I say the best thing about research is it's the process of discovery. I was the kid who asked why all the time, drove my parents crazy, but it turns out asking why and then realizing there's a whole field to discover the answers to that. I, I care about not just discovery of things, but also how do you get that information out? So hence I write a lot as well. So is that something genetic or is that something learned or where do we where do we begin with this? So the really interesting thing is that most things are both genetically and environmentally influenced. And so hence, I'm trained in genetics, but I'm also trained in psychology. And I'm really interested in the intersection of the two. We can't deny that we're all born with these genetic codes. And so we are all wired differently from you know, the very conception. And uh, so a lot of the work I do is with parents and with kids and you know, very often parents are going, oh, what am I doing wrong? Or why is my child so impulsive or so anxious? And you know, what have I done? And I say, well, obviously we're gonna look at the environment and talk about that and talk about things you can do as a parent. But also give yourself some grace because the reality is that your kid was born with this natural temperamental style. You did not create this from scratch. Uh, you know, you are not the engineer of this, meaning it's not all on your shoulders. Um, you can, by understanding your kid's disposition, help them and work with them. But, but the reality is we all start life with, you know, our brains wired in different ways. And then that influence the environment essentially further influences that wiring, the choices we make, the, the things that happen to us. And so I'm really interested in that process by which our genes and our environments come together to shape who we are. And, and when you explain it that way to a parent, what do you notice in the parent? So I think a lot of parents, especially when their kids are struggling, blame themselves. And they wonder, you know, what should I be doing or what did I do wrong? You know, we love our kids and we want to help them. And, uh, and I think that the intensive focus on parenting that we have in our society today, you know, we spend more time talking about parenting, writing about parenting, there's parenting books and blogs and, you know, podcasts and, and, you know, in many ways, obviously information is, is great, it's power, but this intensive focus on parenting, I think 
leads to a lot of pressure on parents to feel like I need to be doing all of the things for my child to, you know, turn into the wonderful human being that I want them to be, to give them every opportunity. And the reality is the research just doesn't support that. It, you know, we we often talk in developmental psychology about good enough parenting, meaning really adverse parenting, right? Like feeding your children, starving your children, all of those kind of things. That's clearly very bad for child development. But there's not evidence that the other end of the extreme, doing everything, bending over backwards, giving your child everything they want and that you think they need, that that is going to instead lead to incredibly great outcomes. Instead, you know, we know that if you're doing the best you can, you are, you know, there's obviously some some good parenting techniques. I'm sure that you all talk about these and we can get into some of them. But in terms of, you know, developing a close relationship with your child and talking with them and establishing boundaries. And as long as you are kind of doing those things, then you're giving your child, you know, what they need to, to develop. And a lot of that development is going to come from within. And uh, a lot of my book is about how kids with different genetic temperaments actually need and respond to parenting in different ways. Um, so there is no one size fits all parenting. And there is no evidence that intensive parenting is what's best for kids. Instead, I think sometimes what it does is just it's, you know, it's hard on kids. They have all these expectations that they feel. It's hard on parents. They feel so much pressure on themselves. And so that's one of the ways that I try and uh, correct some of those misperceptions that are out there. Yeah, there, there is this huge pressure on, on being a parent. How do, you, how do you assess your child's temperament? And, and when, what age can you begin to assess that? So... Temperament begins to stabilize somewhere around two to three years of age. And so there's some evidence that, you know, obviously babies are really different. Um, and you can see that from the beginning. Some of them are more colicky. Some of them are more happy and, and whatnot. And, and um, some of those things might be indicative of kind of subsequent temperamental patterns. But what we find is a lot of parents' reports of what their babies are like actually reflect just how stressed out they are as a parent, right? In terms of, you know, how hard it is, other things going on in their lives, et cetera. So when we think about, about temperament, when I talk to parents about trying to figure out kind of your kid's natural disposition, by the time they start to become toddlers, you can definitely see patterns of behavior that emerge that are consistent, you know, across time, and across different situations as well, too. So, for example, it's normal for all kids to be fearful sometimes, right? If they see a snarling dog and they've never seen a dog before, it's, it's normal for them to be scared of that. But if you have a child who is fearful when you're trying to take them to a new playground or introduce them to a new person, or when you're walking down the street and there's just a sweet, friendly dog, and they've never had any, you know, adverse experiences with dogs before, you start to notice like, oh, maybe my child is more naturally more fearful. I see this kind of tendency in a variety of different situations. I've seen it kind of stably across time now. And, uh, and that's how you can kind of start to figure out your child's natural dispositional style. Well, I, I think there's there's so much more to explore about this. I I get a little fearful though that 
that our sponsors won't want to continue working with us if we don't give them a chance to talk about their temperamental style. So with that in mind, uh, we'll take a commercial break. We'll be right back with Dr. Daniel Dick talking about coding and children. Hey folks, thank you for listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We've been investigating whether or not we want to bring sponsors into our podcast. What are your thoughts? Do you know somebody who might be a good partner with the Dr. Joe Show, who may want to align their product or service with the Dr. Joe Show? Think about it. And we're back with the Dr. Joe Show with Dr. Danielle Dick, author of The Child Code, talking about children and their temperaments. Yeah. And it's just fascinating. I mean, so how many different temperaments are there? And how, once we once we figure out which our child's temperament is sort of leading edge, how does that affect the parenting technique? Yes. Yeah, so in my book, I talk about three big temperamental dimensions that show up in studies conducted all around the world. So hundreds of different studies consistently yield these kind of three big temperamental styles. Um, and I call them the three E's, and they are essentially uh, extroversion. So kids vary just like adults do in how naturally disposed they are to want to be around other people and draw energy from that, or to whether they like or prefer being around just a couple people. They're a little bit quieter. They maybe feel more uncomfortable in social settings. We obviously talk a lot about extroversion in adults, and probably each one of us could have a could have a ready answer for: Are you an extrovert or an introvert, or you know, an ambivert somewhere in the middle? Um, but we don't talk about it a ton in kids, and I think that's really a mistake because. Um, kids who vary on extroversion actually need kind of different things from their parents, which we can talk about. The second big dimension is emotionality. So some kids are just naturally more disposed toward quick feelings. So they are more prone toward fear, frustration, anger. Um, these are the kids that Sometimes it's, you know, it'll feel like it comes out of nowhere. One minute, they're perfectly happy. The next minute you say, come on, let's head to school. And they've thrown down their backpack and are throwing a huge fit and saying, that's it, I'm not going to school. And you think, what has happened? And this is something that uh, is often very challenging for parents to, to manage and to handle. Um, and so there's sometimes our natural tendencies as a parent, as terms of how we might um, address that behavior is can actually backfire. There are certain strategies that are work better for kids who are really high on emotionality. And then the last dimension is effortful control, or what sometimes is colloquially called self-control or impulsivity. Uh, all kids will get better at this as they get older. Of course, it's a product of prefrontal lobe uh, brain development. And that's our, our audience is very familiar with that. Yep. Yes, that's not complete until around 25. You know, that's the bad news for parents. It's a marathon, uh, not a sprint. But my wife says it's probably not complete until a lot later than that, but still working <laughs> on that. There is some evidence that it's slower in, in uh, males compared to females, but we won't get into that. Okay, okay. So, um, but kids also differ 
in um, their natural tendencies toward impulsivity um, or how hard it is to control their behavior. And, uh, and so kids who are impulsivity isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, so entrepreneurs, CEOs, fighter pilots all tend to be more risk-taking, but it can also cause some challenging behavior in kids and cause some challenges for parents. And so there are some strategies for helping kids learn to um, manage that as well, too. And, you know, in my book, I, I talk about it being divided into kind of two parts. The first is, you know, in a very non-sciencey approachable way, uh, the, the basics about how our kids' genes do influence their behavior and how we know that kids' genes are so important in behavior and how it also shapes their environment and their interactions with the environment. And then the second half of the book is all about figuring out your child's disposition. So there's short quizzes that you can um, answer to figure out where your child falls on each of these three dimensions. And then there's information about what parenting strategies work best, depending on where your child falls in terms of their natural genetic disposition. Very yeah. The home and social domain. Yeah, it, it does very much. Um, and how this influences, you know, our biological domain and and then the way we see ourselves, the way we think other people see us. The, the was the second group the, the emotional group? Yes, the high, the um, differences in emotionality. And why is that one so challenging? It can be challenging because it feels like kids are getting upset, quote, over nothing, or they're making a big deal or the sort of, you know, mountain out of a molehill kind of thing. And our natural tendencies sometimes are either to tell them, you know, hey, this is not a big deal, calm down, or to try and clamp down on what often results from that emotionality, which is acting out behavior because they, they don't have the ability to regulate. And when they're really upset about something, many times their tendency is to, you know, throw things down or to yell or to kick or hit. And so parents then, instead of responding to this kind of underlying what's causing the problem, they're responding to the behavior, right? In terms of, hey, don't do that. That's not okay. And you know, even if we just as a moment step back and think of how as adults we would respond if we're really upset about something and our partner, for example, says to us, hey, this isn't a big deal. You're making it a big deal. You just need to calm down. Or, you know, I sometimes jokingly say when I've asked my husband a hundred times to please put away the laundry sitting on the couch and he has promise me he will. And I come home and it's you know still sitting there on the couch and I'm raising my voice. You can imagine if he says, you need to calm down. You know, this isn't a productive way. Stop raising your voice right now. It just makes me more upset. You know, no, I'm really upset. And, and very often that's what our kids are trying to convey. They just don't have the skills to say, you know, mom, I'm feeling very upset about this. And so, you know, how can we work on this together? Instead, they're, you know, throwing a fit or they're kicking or they're screaming. And so with highly emotional kids, 
you know, um, sometimes these natural parenting strategies that we might use, sort of rewards and consequences, what you find is that your child's getting punished a lot, the behavior's not getting any better, and, um, and so instead, what you really want to do is, is collaboratively start working with your child to figure out, you know, once you realize, okay, there, this is actually not that my child is trying to misbehave, it's that they have this natural disposition toward getting really upset about things, and they don't have the skills to manage it yet. And so when you approach it that way with, I need to help my child develop the skills, as opposed to punishing the behavior, the analogy is if, if your child couldn't do algebra, you wouldn't keep punishing them and think you, that their algebra skills were going to get better because you're punishing them because they're failing their tests. You would instead need to help them learn how to do algebra. And that's what we, our kids who are highly emotional really need. They need help with the skills to manage those strong feelings. And, and do parents, if they've got a kid who's doing that, do they then feel inadequate because they're somehow they've messed up or their kid is, is embarrassing to them? And that's one of the things that I talk to parents about. And, you know, I'm also very upfront that part of my rationale for writing this book was that when I had my son, I found myself raising the challenging high-risk child that I studied. Oh, the irony, you know, <laughs> highly impulsive, highly emotional. And I was struck by how much of the parenting information that's out there in mainstream didn't talk about, you know, what I knew to be true as a researcher, meaning that you know, this wasn't behavior I had created because I was an inadequate parent or I was doing something wrong, that he had these natural dispositions. And so, you know, instead it was a matter of how do I help him with those skills? And I will tell you that, you know, even though I was armed with all of this research and knowledge, it's hard to do because of course these things are genetically influenced and my highly emotional child also has a somewhat emotional, but, you know, now managed mother. And so <laughs> they tend to push your buttons. And when he would get all worked up, you know, it was my tendency to get worked up as well, too. So I was both managing my own strong emotions to that kind of behavior, in addition to trying to help him learn to manage uh, those emotions. And so, you know, that's why I talk about there's always, it's not just about the child's genotype and temperament. It's, of course, we all have our own natural temperamental styles, too. And so it's always an interaction between our kids' dispositions and our own dispositions. And, and is, is there then genetic transmission then of my particular temperamental style? Does that show up a lot more in, in the kids or... So the way that it works, the genetics underlying these traits work, is that there is no gene for massive temper tantrums or emotionality or no gene for extroversion. Instead, we know that all these complex behaviors, whether we're talking about personality and temperament or whether we're talking about substance use problems or depression or anxiety, they are all influenced by thousands of genetic variants. 
and some of which increase risk, some of which decrease risk. And so where your natural disposition falls is kind of the average across how many of these thousand genetic variants that influence, say, emotionality you might carry. And then you imagine that you pass on half of your genetic material, which is random, to your child, and your child gets the other half of their genetic material from the other biological parent. So if you imagine, let's pretend I'm kind of medium on uh, emotionality, I might have half uh, genetic variants that are increasing it and half genetic variants that are decreasing it. So I kind of end up somewhere in the middle. Well, you can flip a coin 10 times and on average, you'll get about half heads, half tails. So on average, you would pass along kind of an, you know, uh, an average emotionality to your child. Some of your high genes, some of your low genes, but you can flip a coin and get 10 tails in a row. It's not likely, but it's possible. So you might also be kind of average on emotionality or extroversion or impulsivity. And by chance, your child might get a higher loading of the high emotionality or high extroversion or you know high impulsivity uh, genetic variants, or they might get a high dose you know, from the other parent. And that's why sometimes you can see these dispositional styles in your kids, these certain traits that you're like, oh, that's totally me. And you see some things that you might be like, oh, that's totally you know, their, their other parent. And sometimes you see these traits that you go, where in the world did that come from? And it could just be you, you end up with, you know, you have two kind of parents that fall somewhere in the middle, but the child happens to get high, high genes from each side. So you end up with a highly extroverted or highly emotional or highly impulsive child. Yeah, it, it certainly almost seems like a flip of a coin. Could it be, you know, heads or tails and what? What's the luck? What's the chance? But one thing that is absolutely predictable is that our sponsors really have something to talk about. And that is not just by chance. So we'll take a commercial break. We'll be right back with the Dr. Joe Show. Hey, folks, welcome back. So any thoughts? Do you listen to other podcasts? Do you see how they do the sponsors? Is there a way that they're utilizing sponsors that you enjoy or you don't enjoy? I listen to Smartless and I really enjoy how the co-hosts share the voiceover for the product or service. It's really funny for the most part, but it's unique. It's them really endorsing. Does that work? What do you think? And we're back with the Dr. Joe Show with our guest, Dr. Daniel Dick, the author of The Child Code, talking about children. So before we go, Mark, you, you have children. How I do. How, how is this resonating with you? I'm fascinated by it, right? And and you know, part of it that fascinates me is the mirroring. We were talking about it uh, last week, but we were also, you know, talking about how Dr. Dick sometimes finds herself, you know, mirroring the child and the child mirroring them, and you know what start you start to think about that limbic. Uh, response, right? As opposed to the prefrontal cortex, Julie and I used to talk about dropping the rope, right? You're having this, this, this tug of war with the four-year-old and it's, you know, you're the adult, drop the rope, just drop the rope and, and, and talk uh, commonsensically uh, with that, with that other human being. 
but it's also, you know, the, the episode we had the other week about the failure to launch, you know, that was really interesting because it, you know, a lot of this all builds, right. So, you know, Dr. Dick was talking about, um, you know, the, the sides of the spectrum of parenting, right. The abuse and the neglect and the cruelty versus the over doing it. Right. And, and, you know, the only thing I kept thinking about is, you know, I'm not sure which is worse, right, on those two spectrums sometimes because of how it can affect the the human when they when they grow older and then they don't have that resilience and they don't know how to fail and they don't have the courage to take risks. You know, so yeah, this has been fascinating. I'm 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 engaged. I'm at the edge of my seat, like all of our listeners right now. Absolutely, and. And there is that sort of fine line, right, between, you know, here's my kid's behavior. Uh, at what point should a parent start to worry that maybe mm. there is something else going on? Dr. Dick, what, what about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that parents pose to me all the time. How do I know if I just have a really impulsive child or is this ADHD? Is my child just high on emotionality and fearfulness, or is this actually anxiety? And the thing I always tell parents is that, you know, if you are concerned about your child, it can never be the wrong thing to seek help. Because asking, is this normal, which many parents do, I think is the wrong question because all behavior falls on a bell-shaped curve, meaning it is normal for some kids to be very low on a behavior, lots of kids to fall somewhere in the middle, and some kids to be very high. So it is normal to have some kids who are going to be high on anxiety, high on impulsivity. And so the better question to ask is, is this interfering with my child's life? Is it interfering with their relationship with me, their parent, with their friends, with their schooling and their teachers? And if the answer to any of those, or in particular, all of those is yes, it can never be the wrong thing to get help. In fact, the people who I know who are most likely to seek out help are other psychiatrists and psychologists because we realize raising kids is really hard. And when kids have challenging temperaments and behaviors, seeking help from other people to get strategies and ideas and support for how to manage those um, can be really helpful and beneficial. So I always encourage parents, if you're worried about your child, worry less about trying to figure out, you know, this fine line between is this a disorder or not? Many ch child psychiatrists even don't like making diagnoses because I know that's one of the things parents worry about, like, oh, is my child going to be labeled and will this be bad for them? You know, really what we're focused on is how do we get this child the help that they need, whether that's pharmaceutical, whether that's behavioral, whether that's support for the child and for the parents. And so I always encourage parents to seek help. Yeah, I, and I I am absolutely in lockstep with you about that. It's so important. It's it's not it's not something you need to be ashamed of. So many people don't, especially in the addiction world, especially in the addiction world where the parents are so ashamed 
that they will be judged as bad parents because their kids are using, but they don't seek help sometimes until way too late, way too late. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my research is with substance use in adolescence and, uh, and I talk to parents about, you know, not all kids are equally at risk. And so here are things to know about your child. So the, the kids that are more impulsive, right, which parents will know if their child is more like that, because they've probably seen that behavior since they were young. They're the kids that are dangling from tree treetops and ending up in the ER with broken arms. And then when they're adolescents, they are much more prone to wanting to experiment and take risks and try new things. And, um, and then, you know, the, the, the other piece is the kids who are more highly emotional and more prone to um, depressive thinking or anxious tendencies, oftentimes, or, you know, the, the substance use might not be as obvious in adolescence because so much of adolescent substance use does tend to be social, but we actually see the onset of more severe problems with kids who have more depressive anxiety tendencies a little later, once they can get ready access to substances and you know they might be using in particular alone or to cope with um, uh, social situations or some of these anxiety depression feelings. So, so one of the things for parents to know is, you know, be aware some kids are more at risk than others. And so you can be talking to them about this. You can be helping set boundaries. But, you know, as I know, you said you you can't control anyone else's behavior. And you you discover that as a parent when you're trying to buckle a squirming toddler into mm -hmm. a car seat. Uh, you yep. realize how hard it is to force anybody to do something regardless of their size. And it's certainly true of you know, as they get older as well, too. Yeah, you, you control no one, you influence everyone. And I, I remember years ago, one of my kids, they were a teenager, and they said, you think you know me because you're a child psychiatrist. I said, no, I know you because you're my kid, you know? And, and this is what I really want to communicate to parents, especially in the context of what we're talking about now, don't let anybody ever tell you that you are not the expert in your child. You are the expert. People like Dr. Dick and I, we're just the professionals. But the only one who can tell us what it's like to be them is the child. Um, and so that building of respect and value, I hope, is what you know parents can do because then their kids will talk with them. Like I'm like I saying offline that, you know, one of my phrases to parents, it is much more rewarding to be amazed at who your child is than disappointed in who they are not. And when you can be amazed, you will be amazed at who they are. So why are they behaving like this? Instead of, you know, thinking that they're a failure, they're not doing what well, wonder, well, yeah, well, why are they behaving like this? Is that fair to say? I absolutely love that and could not agree more. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that I think if we're all honest, we will admit that we have hopes and dreams for our kids. Before they ever came onto this into this world, we probably had ideas of who we wanted them to be. You know, maybe you wanted the star athlete or you wanted the valedictorian or you wanted the professor or the lawyer or the doctor or, you know, the, the actor, whatever it might be. And 
one of the, the, I think, humbling pieces of being a parent is realizing, you know, I, I've heard someone talk about how we're not engineers, we're shepherds, meaning we are not in there building the child from scratch. We are not designed, we don't have the ability to design them to be the robot, the perfect child that we want. And instead, you know, what, and I love this gets back to what you said, really what I think our privilege is, is to get to know our children and, you know, really get to see their their natural dispositions, who they are. And I think one of the biggest gifts we can give our children is by understanding and being intentional about how they are wired, how each of our kids is unique and who, who that little person is, rather than trying to mold them or bend them to who we might have wanted them to be, that when we recognize their natural dispositions, we can help them embrace them and see them as strengths and then avoid some of the potential pitfalls that might come along with that. And so to, to put a little bit, um, to make that a little more concrete, you know, I'm a consummate extrovert and my son is far more introverted. He's at the other end of that bell curve. And when he was little, I used to every Saturday morning, you know, get up and say, okay, today we're going to meet up with so-and-so and so-and-so. We're going to go to the park. We're going to go do this. And here's all the people <laughs> that are going to be there. And it was my idea of a perfect Saturday together. And, you know, he, we would go from having a nice breakfast to all of a sudden, you know, he would sweep the cereal bowl off the table and say, I'm not going, you know, and then we would get into this that's not okay. You know, you don't get to make the rules. You know, you don't sweep the cereal onto the ground. You're in trouble, young man. All the things that, you know, you don't have to be an expert to know that's going nowhere good and certainly not leading to a fun Saturday. But once I sort of saw this behavior emerging again, now there's stabil stability. I see it emerging across time. And I stepped back and was more mindful and intentional about what was going on. I realized, my child is far more introverted and he didn't have the ability to say, mom, that's very anxiety provoking. The idea of being with a bunch of people I don't know at a new place. Instead, he would just, you know, throw the shoe or sweep the cereal bowl off the table. And, and that was his response to that heightened fearfulness. And, uh, and once I realized this, I could one, help him with the skills, right? We would do a play date with a friend, we sort of established a routine, and then you could work in a couple new friends. And, you know, so you build his skills. I was essentially throwing him into the deep end of the pool before he knew how to tread water. Um, so you could do that. But the other piece was, I realized I was making him feel lesser, you know, where he was starting to think, well, what's wrong with me that I don't want to be with all the other kids. I don't feel comfortable on the playground with the other kids. And to this day, he's 16 now. He still would much prefer to be with a friend or two in a social setting. Now he has the skills to be in a social setting when needed. You know, he will show up and be pleasant at the, the family reunion, but it is certainly not his preferred situation. And by recognizing this, I could also help him embrace all the good things about being 
a quieter, more introverted person that otherwise by trying to force him into my world and my vision, I was really making him feel inadequate. And I think that's just one example of how when we're intentional about paying attention to who our kids are, we can both help them with skills, but we can also help them see their dispositions as strengths as well. Yeah, it, it really is being able to recognize and communicate their value because we all want the same thing, which is really to feel valuable. And, you know, not feeling valuable can be anxiety provoking. And I really don't want my sponsors to feel any anxiety at all because I think they are so valuable. So with that in mind, we will take a break, listen to the value of our sponsors. We'll be right back with Dr. Dick and the Dr. Joe Show. Hey, welcome back. And again, we're super grateful for you listening to the Dr. Joe Show. If you have anyone that you think might be a good sponsor, shoot us an email at drjoepodcast at gmail.com. D-R-J-O-E podcast at gmail.com. Give us your thoughts about the show too. We're wondering, are we talking to the trees or are people really gaining value in this? Please let us know. Thank you again and enjoy the rest of the show. And we're back with the Dr. Joe Show with Dr. Danielle Thick, author of The Child Code, talking about children. Listen up. We're talking about children. And, and my guess is that all of our listeners at some point uh, have, have been children. <laughs> I uh, guess. At some point. Well, it's just, you know, these things come to me. I mean, so is it fair to say that a, a gene is only as good as its environment? You know, you can't study genetics without studying the environment. You know, I sometimes say genes in a Petri dish do not generate a human being. You know, the, the genes have to be growing and developing in an environment. And that environment influences the way that genes unfold and that genes influence outcome. And, you know, if we get back to the temperament piece, for example, you know, we we often talk about in child development, three big ways that our genes and our environments interact. And the first is that when you have kids who are being raised by biologically related parents, then you might imagine, for example, parents who are more predisposed toward being studious and inquisitive, they might have a lot of books in the house. And then they also might pass on genes to their kids that make them more studious and inquisitive. And so those kids then are both going to have kind of a genetic edge. <laughs> and then they're going to have an environment where they're surrounded by books and their parents are sending them off to educational camps. And, and so, you know, we call this gene environment correlation. And you can imagine how it can work the other way too, meaning maybe parents who are more prone toward getting angry or upset, right? They're a little quicker to temper um, or to aggression. They might pass along genes that influence those traits in their kids, but then they might also be more likely to, you know, be more aggressive toward their kids. And so now you have an environment where kids might have a genetic risk, but also an environment that's exacerbating that. But you can imagine how that same disposition when you are instead helping that child learn to manage those strong feelings, those big emotions, teach them self-regulation skills, doesn't mean that's a child that's destined to you know, grow up and develop problems. And that's where the environment can come into play. 
And and then, uh, you know, another big piece of the environment is that some environments are random. You know, there could be an earthquake or a natural disaster or, you know, a, a car accident that happens to me tomorrow. And that's probably going to be kind of random. But some environments we actually select into. So risk-taking kids select into hanging out with other risk-taking kids or being more likely to want to, you know, maybe um, sneak out of the house and go to that party they're not supposed to. And so our dispositions can also choose us to select into certain environments, which might exacerbate those dispositions, you know, for good or for bad. Um, and so those are just a couple examples of the ways that that essentially our genes and our environments are not independent things. They're actually related to one another. And, and that really does, you know, that's part of the I am approach is saying, you know, there are four domains that influence us and that we respond to your home domain, the social domain, we're talking about those, clearly talking about the biological domain of your brain and body. And then the I see, how do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? So because these four domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. I mean, you can't get much smaller than a gene, but Dr. Dick, given what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? So I'm gonna focus on a small change for parents since I am a parent and I, I care a lot about parents and um, working with parents, which is, to reframe how you think about your children in terms of recognizing that they all come with their unique genetic wiring. And that when you see challenging behaviors in your kids or your kids are struggling to give yourself a little grace, don't have that immediate reaction of blaming yourself, wondering what's wrong with you or with your child, and just recognizing that they might have a more challenging disposition. And uh, and so this isn't something that you created. It's not your fault. But instead, this is maybe the way that your child's brain works and you can help them with that. So that would be my small change is really in reframing how you think about your child's behavior and paying more attention to the role that their natural codes, their genetic codes play in that behavior. So, so recognizing that becomes an opportunity to, to really influence them and remind them of their value all the time, because that's one of the great risks that we have is that people feel inadequate, less valuable, and that puts them at risk for all sorts of different things. So I could not agree more, but you know, recognize what's going on with your kid and don't blame yourself for it. Yeah. The other, the other truth of the I am. Uh, everyone's got one. Everyone's interested in what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain. Because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected, and you're part of someone's home or social domain. So this means you control no one. You influence everyone. Dr. Daniel Dick, author of The Child Code. What kind of influence do you want to be? Well, I hope it will be a positive one. One of the things that I hope I can bring to people is 
I love research. I love that process of discovery. You started with talking about all this, the scientific pieces that I contribute to, but really what I want to be able to do is to bring the science to people in ways that is are understandable and empowering and that people can use in their day-to-day -day life. I think too much of our research gets left in scientific journals and at scientific meetings and with scientists talking to other scientists. And I really want to bring it to, to parents and to the public in ways that they can use it to help in their own lives. It's so important, that translational component where we, we take this hardcore science and make it accessible. One of my phrases is bringing the wet lab to the bedside. You know, let's, let's take what we learn I said that to one of our drugstore theater kids, and she said to me, why would you want to bring a wet dog to someone's bedside? And not, not that kind of wet lab. Um, so uh, how do we find the book? How do we get in touch with you? And what, how do we get the child code? So you can find the book at thechildcode.com or on Amazon or in bookstores, wherever books are sold. And in addition, you can find me at my personal website, which is danielledick.com. I try and put up a whole series of free resources, blogs, videos, materials that are intended for general audiences, not just other scientists, to hopefully help parents and individuals understand the science, new things that we're finding in child development, in substance use. And, um, and to make that more accessible to individuals to apply in their own lives. Terrific. Thank you so much uh, for being on the Dr. Joe Show. It's been incredibly informative, and I know that, that people will really get a lot out of this. We control no one. We influence everyone. You get to choose. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You all have a wonderful evening. <laughs>